the Jodcast, March 2024 edition, with Fiona Porter, Louisa Mason, Bijas N, Jesse Marrow, Lily Correa Magnus, George Bendo, and James Turner. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm Fiona Porter and joining me in the studio today are Louisa Mason. Hello. And Bijas N. Hi. So, to start things off for this month, we're each going to be talking about an item that's been in the news recently for astronomy. I imagine that most of our listeners will have seen just the spectacular image that the Event Horizon Telescope produced back in 2019, which is the first direct observation of a black hole, which, personally, I always thought it looked a bit like a fiery donut. Since then, the team at the AHT have still been hard at work, and they have now produced an updated image. The original one used data collected up to 2017, the new one includes data up to 2018. It takes quite a while to do all the processing for this, so that's why they don't have data up to 2023. So, by and large, it looks very similar to how it did before, which is good. It means that the black hole that we're observing isn't doing anything unexpected, and that it has roughly the properties we expect it to. We don't expect it to be a type which changes dramatically over relatively short timescales. But what we have observed is that the brightest area in the ring of material around it has rotated. If it were originally about sort of six o'clock, it's now rotated round to about five o'clock. And that is actually quite an interesting observation, because it means we are tracking the movement of just the material accreting onto the black hole. And I just think it's incredible, because this thing is something like 50 million light years away. So 16-ish megaparsecs for astronomers. And I think it's really remarkable that we can see a change in something that distant in comparatively a very small period of time. This is in part thanks to the fact that the Greenland telescope has been added to the overall Event Horizon telescope's instruments. Because of the way that the technique they're using, interferometry, works, they can essentially use different stations all over the planet to create more or less a planet-sized telescope. But it works better and we see clearer details the more different components that there are. So with this new telescope in there, it means we can see it even better than before. So related to the black hole, so one interesting thing that comes to my mind is uh, the magnetic fields around these black holes. So as you, you were telling that the, the brightest part of the black hole, uh, the event horizon has shifted by 30 degrees, it would be exciting to see how the magnetic field structure has changed over the same period of time. Because last time, a researcher who was leading the Event Horizon collaboration, when he visited JBCA, he had shown the pictures of the magnetic field around the black hole. So it'd be really interesting to see how the magnetic field structure has changed. You're absolutely right. And I mean, that's also you know a much more complex thing to visualize, I think. So these are images which the public might not have had a good look at. But there are things which we as scientists are very interested by, if occasionally slightly befuddled by. There's the sort of running joke that everyone's nightmare question, if they're ever doing a talk, is, oh, but have you considered magnetic fields? <laughs> That's really true. Uh, magnetic field is one of the single most mysterious kind of forces in the universe. 
Since the last 50 to 60 years, astronomers have been trying to study the star formation efficiency, star formation rates. People find that the star formation rates are not as high as they expected in different parts of the universe, including the center of our own Milky Way galaxy, where there's a black hole again. So people say magnetic field is one of the mysterious factors, which is the reason why the star formation is not happening at the rate as it is expected. So more insights into this regarding magnetic field will be really useful. Yeah, I guess I'll just have to watch that space in the meanwhile. Well, I mean, as best we can, unless we can see in the radio. Louisa, what news do you bring? So, different wavelength, but still incredible imagery. James Webb have recently released public images of 19 spiral galaxies. So this forms part of the FANGS project. As with most science projects, they have to have a great name. And FANGS aims to investigate nearby galaxies across multiple wavelengths. So they do this using a variety of instruments. They've taken data using ALMA, the Hubble Space Telescope, and the Very Large Telescope. So using the James Webb Space Telescope is just one of their many different instruments. So you're sort of getting a a complementary view from a number of different wavelengths to get as full a picture as you can, basically. Exactly. And with James Webb especially. Um, Being able to observe through the dust, the mid-infrared instrument, or MIRI, takes images and maps the filaments, or star-forming regions, within the galaxy. Also very exciting in these images, you might notice that there are holes in the interstellar medium, which is something that astronomers haven't seen with the James Webb Telescope yet, and are looking forward to discovering more. I have to admit, I'm not very familiar with why there would be holes in the interstellar medium. Is it something which other telescopes have seen before and it's just that James Webb hasn't? So these holes are formed from exploding stars. So just as much as we can use dust to observe gas flow into newly formed stars, we're actually seeing the death of the stars as well. So it gives you a full range of the lifetime of stars within galaxies. That's really cool. I I had no idea you could do that. That's really interesting, yeah. Okay, so uh, last news item for this month, uh, Vijas? What I'll be talking about is a new discovery that contradicts the classical belief that the black holes were formed after the first stars and galaxies. Researchers analyzing the data from the NASA's James Webb Space Telescope has found a number of bright galaxies and a number of black holes. So based on these observations, they propose that in the universe's first 50 to 100 million years, the intense gravity of the black holes and the strong magnetic storms and outflows coming from the black holes has sparked the birth of the stars. So what you're saying is that traditionally we believe that, you know, stars came first and then some of the stars collapsed and formed black holes. But this is sounding more like they were coming to life more or less simultaneously? Because, I mean, 50 to 100 million years is a huge amount on human time spans. But on astronomical timescales, that's really early in the universe. Exactly. That, that's, that's extremely mis- mysterious, isn't it? The astronomers have found a large number of bright galaxies, which is the mystery here. If the galaxies are that bright, then the number of stars must, must be also huge. And the puzzle is how such a huge number of stars are formed in such an early part of the universe, you know? So astronomers have also found a large number of black holes about 50 to 100 million years after the Big Bang. One possible answer to this puzzle is that the black holes eject out plasma and magnetic storms, which compresses the gas clouds, molecular clouds where stars form, and enhance the 
rate of formation of stars, which is partly one of the reasons why we see so many bright galaxies with so many stars in the early universe. That is a really sort of unexpected take, I think, because we always tend to assume that in order for black holes to form, stars have to have come first. But while I'm no expert on black holes, even really massive stars wouldn't collapse quite that quickly, I don't think. Or at least not nearly in the quantity that you'd need to produce the number of black holes it sounds like there are. It goes to show that galaxy formation isn't as standard as we think it is across the universe. And there Mm. are still a lot of mysteries and different galaxies to understand. I agree. So the astronomers propose that there are two stages to the formation of such kind of extremely bright galaxies. So in the first stage, the outflows coming from the black holes are so strong that it compresses the molecular clouds and forms a lot of stars. And in the second stage, the outflows start to become less intense and magnetic fields become stronger around the black holes. And then there are these magnetic storms coming out of the black holes, which compresses the clouds and once again forms a lot of stars. This could be one of the reasons why we see a high rate of star formation in the early universe. Now, you know, we actually, we picked all of these segments completely independently, it's worth noting. But it's rather convenient that we've got a through theme of, uh, of black holes and magnetic fields. Because our interview for this episode is with Dr. Kate Pattle from University College London. And in this interview, she talks about her research on the involvement of magnetic fields in galaxy formation. Hello, everyone. I'm Jesse. I'm a first year PhD here at the University of Manchester. And today I'm joined in the studio by Dr. Kate Pattle. Welcome. Hello. Great to be here. Great to have you. So, Dr. Paddle, you are currently a Royal Society University Research Fellow at the University College London, and you are working on early star formation and magnetic fields. Can you tell me a bit more about what you research? Uh, yes, so I'm interested in what I tend to think of the later of as the later stages of the star formation process, by which I mean the late stages of the collapse and fragmentation of a cloud of molecular hydrogen gas into uh, dense star forming cores, but this is actually probably what most other researchers think of as the start of the star formation process. The point at which you've got something that's definitely going to collapse to form a new protostellar system and the new star and a new planetary system. So I'm interested in how uh, molecular clouds collapse and fragment and really how we get uh, the distribution of masses of stars that we see in the universe today. So when stars reach the main sequence and start burning hydrogen into helium, we know that we get um, 50 low-mass stars for every one star like the Sun, and higher-mass stars, O stars and B stars, the hot blue stars, are vanishingly rare in the universe. And what we're interested in is, how does that come about? Why is it so likely that you form lower-mass stars and so unlikely that you form things like Rigel or uh, Betelgeuse and such like? We're also very interested in the efficiency with which you turn interstellar gas into new stars, because it's actually a staggeringly inefficient process. Depending on where you start counting, clouds maybe convert 1% of their mass into into stars. And even once you've got a cloud of a clump of gas that's gravitationally bound, even then we think it's only about one third efficient, this conversion rate. And we want to understand why that happens and how it's set and how it varies 
with environment in a galaxy because that has consequences for all sorts of things how galaxies evolve how the next generation of stars on form it's a hugely complex process and we understand very little about it which um is why i find it so fascinating to work on really yeah it it is it sounds fascinating i do the same i research the same thing and it is fascinating and so the natural question then is uh where do magnetic fields fall in that story Ah, well, this is the classic question in all of astronomy, isn't it? Ah, have you considered the magnetic fields? So the interstellar medium is threaded by magnetic fields on, on all size scales, really. For a spiral galaxy like our Milky Way, the magnetic field of the galaxy as a whole broadly follows the same spiral pattern as the arms of the galaxy. But inside these dense clouds of molecular hydrogen where stars are forming, uh, I'm probably just going to call them molecular clouds, but that's what I mean when I say molecular clouds, we see quite complex magnetic field morphologies. And magnetic fields are notoriously difficult to both to measure and also to understand the effect that they're having on a system because they broadly serve as an extra pressure term. So if you have a clump of gas that wants to collapse under gravity, uh, there's a number of different forces that resist that collapse. The one that you'd probably immediately think of is pressure, so thermal pressure. These gas clouds, they're extremely cold. They're only maybe 10, 20 Kelvin above absolute zero, but that's still enough to provide a resistive force against that collapse. And they're also turbulent, and the actual effect that that turbulence has is very complex and somewhat different field of study, but it um, probably, at least on some some level, also provides resistance against collapse. But what's interesting about magnetic fields is they also provide pressure against collapse, but they don't provide it equally in every direction. Because what magnetic fields have that a lot of forces don't is directionality. If you think of magnetic fields as essentially like pieces of elastic strung through your molecular cloud it's very difficult to move across magnetic field lines like you if you took a row of guitar strings or elastic bands and tries to cross them over it's very difficult to do it so at right angles to a magnetic field it's extremely difficult to make a cloud collapse for for gravity to win but if you want to move up and down those magnetic field lines it's like moving a bead along a piece of string it's completely free to move so it makes the dynamics of a cloud much more complex Probably magnetic fields, on average, slow down the collapse of clouds in stars and make star formation less efficient, but they also provide directionality to the evolution of a molecular cloud, preferred directions of gas flow, and that produces some very interesting effects on the structure of clouds and cores. And so you mentioned that the fields have a directionality, and how that directionality is the key component to how they affect uh, the way that clouds and eventual eventually stars will form. How do we observe those fields? Because I remember uh, one of my first physics demonstrations that I ever saw was m- my teacher took a bunch of iron filings in a bag, put them in next to a bar magnet, and we could see them all kind of moving around and, and, and tracing the field lines. I'm guessing there's no bags in, that you can use, and so... I mean, it would be wonderful. If, <laughs> like many things in astrophysics, the problem is that what we're receiving is photons. And from those photons, we have to infer something about the, the physics of what's going on. So there's a number of different ways of trying to measure uh, the magnetic fields in the interstellar medium. The one that I mostly use is somewhat indirect. So the most direct way of measuring magnetic fields is through what's known as the Zeeman effect, and that's when certain molecules uh, in the interstellar medium produce spectral lines that are split in the presence of a magnetic field. So it's great because 
the amount that the spectral line gets split depends directly on the magnetic field strength. So it's a direct measurement of the magnetic field strength where we're looking. But there's a number of problems. Firstly, not all molecules produce this effect. And the ones that do, there's quite specific environments in which they exist. And if you're not in one of those environments, it becomes very difficult to do. Well, impossible to do because there's no molecules there that produce the effect. And you can also only measure one component of the magnetic field strength, the line of sight components, where just the part that's coming towards us or going away from us. And finally, it's just really difficult to do. The, it's extremely small effect and the amount of telescope time that you need to dedicate to get detection is just staggering. So what we tend to use instead and what I use in my own research is the polarisation of interstellar dust grains. I tend to sort of refer to this as a cheaper and easier way of doing it and then people get upset because we're still using things like the Planck Observatory which costs billions of euros you know to do it. But what we can do is map large areas of the sky quite fast. So the reason why this works, it's a bit indirect, really. Um, it's been known that emission from dust in the interstellar medium has a polarisation since the late 1940s, the Hiltner and Hall papers. But it took until probably only about the last 10 years before we think we've really understood why it happens. So when I say dust in the interstellar medium... I'm not talking about the kind of dust that we, we experience in our daily lives. It's a, a shorthand for mixture of silicates, uh, carbonaceous compounds, ferrous materials, so sort of more like sand and soot and iron filings than anything that we would find around us on a daily basis. And those dust grains, they one of the key things about them is that they're large, or at least they're large compared to uh, molecules like H2 and carbon monoxide that make up most of these molecular clouds. And what happens is they end up aligned with their long axis. If you think of them something like maybe rugby balls, which they're not, but they they do have a long axis and a short axis, they end up with their long axis perpendicular to the magnetic field direction in the interstellar medium. And there's been lots of mechanisms proposed for why this happens, but what seems to happen in the end is that photons that are flying around in these dust clouds uh, hit the dust grains and start them spinning. So they end up spinning around their short axis. And if they've got some paramagnetic moment to them, that ends up aligned along the magnetic field's direction. It's not at all an intuitive reason why it happens, but it does. And that's very, very helpful for our purposes because it means that because they've got a major axis aligned perpendicular to the magnetic field direction, their emission is linearly polarised slightly. And if we can detect that linear polarisation and rotate it by 90 degrees, we can infer the magnetic field direction, which is very helpful. Um, these dust grains, like I said, they're cold. They're only a few tens of degrees above absolute zero. So they radiate in what we call the submillimetre part of the spectrum. Submillimetre, it's sort of neither fish nor fowl, you know. It's um, either extremely long wavelength infrared or extremely short wavelength radio. And there's no real distinction between them. It's just what you choose to consider it to be. But if we can observe the emission from these dust grains and if we can observe the polarisation of that emission, then we can measure the magnetic field. But rather than the line of sight magnetic field, which we measure with the Zeeman effect, here we're measuring the magnetic field in the plane of the sky, but only its direction, not its strength, which hampers us for interpreting it, of course. And so is there any way of getting the strength? 
there's painful ways. Well, really only one painful way, which is known as the Davis Chandrasekhar Fermi method, which, apart from anything else, is definitive proof that whatever you want to do in astrophysics, Chandrasekhar got there first and did it better than you. But it requires a lot of assumptions. Essentially, we measure how much the magnetic field lines wibble. Um, and from that wibbling, we infer how much they're being disturbed by the gas motions around them, work out the relative importance of the magnetic field due, uh, in relation to turbulence, and then with some various other horrible approximations, we come out at something that's supposedly the magnetic field strength in the plane of the sky. I sort of feel like if we went back in time and asked Chandrasekhar and Fermi and Davis about this, they'd be absolutely horrified that we're still using this now. They came up with it in the early 1950s and sort of scribbled it almost literally on the back of an envelope, and we're still using it now. The surprising thing isn't that it's an approximation, it's that it works at all, but we've done some sort of meta-analysis comparison of various different attempts at this made over the last 20 years, and it's actually probably not a bad approximation. And there's a lot of work being done at the moment by people like Yun-Hao Yu and Chiu Chen and various other people to improve it significantly. It's somewhat the only game in town, so we play it, but if all, all of these measurements we have to always remember are approximations and not more than that. And for the people at home who aren't necessarily familiar with, with astronomy, getting it somewhat close-ish to good enough is most of the times the best thing we can do. <laughs> so long as we know, well, so long as we re- so long as we know it's an approximation, then it's useful. Mm-hmm, exactly. Absolutely. And so I guess in a lot of the analysis that you do, the directionality of the field matters more than the actual field strength. Then. I mean, we'd love to know the magnetic field strength, but we can work with the direction because one of the most useful tools that we have for interpreting these observations is comparison with simulations. Because the great thing about simulation is you know what magnetic field strength you put in. So a lot of work has been done simulating uh, how molecular clouds evolve to gravitational collapse in the presence of a magnetic field over the last, well, more than 10 years, but the increasing power of computers means that these simulations become more and more doable. Once you have to do magnetohydrodynamics rather than non-magnetohydrodynamics, everything becomes significantly more computationally expensive, unfortunately. But we can compare our observations to models with a weak magnetic field or a strong magnetic field and see do does what we see look like either of these to a certain extent they do the observations do match some of the simulations particularly a prediction that's come out of the simulations is that if you've got a molecular cloud that starts out with a strong magnetic field you will get a very characteristic distribution of the magnetic field in comparison with the gas structure in the cloud so if the magnetic field is weak, essentially the magnetic field just moves around with the gas. Like you move some gas and the magnetic field goes with it. So wherever you look, the magnetic field direction is parallel to the direction of the density structure in the cloud. Um, so that's the weak field prediction. But in the strong magnetic field case, you have to some extent the opposite. Still the magnetic field and the gas are coupled to each other. But what happens is whereas in the weak field case, the gas drags the magnetic field around here, the magnetic field directs the gas flow. So I was saying earlier on, it's like you can move things, if you think of the magnetic field lines as elastic bands or guitar strings or something, it's very easy to move gas along those strings like beads on a wire, but you couldn't cross it between from one wire to another easily at all. And really, that's 
the basis of the behavior that the simulations predict. In a strong magnetic field, material gas flows along the magnetic field lines and sort of collects in sheets perpendicular to the magnetic field direction. So at low gas densities, the magnetic field and the gas flow is parallel because the gas is flowing along the magnetic field. And then at high densities, material accumulates in sheets perpendicular to the magnetic field direction. So we get this very characteristic flip from parallel to the density structure to perpendicular in the strong field case. So those are the kind of things that we go looking for. And it has been seen, so the Planck Telescope, Planck Consortium did a lot of work on this. They found that on large scales, we do see this behavior. We see preference for magnetic fields to be parallel to density structure at low density and perpendicular at high density which does suggest that the magnetic fields are, at least early on in the evolution of molecular clouds, important. And so during your talk, you also briefly mentioned feedback. And so for those at home who might not be familiar with the term, feedback is the word that we use to describe the way that stars affect the gas around them. Um, And so there's jets, there's stellar winds, there's supernovae, etc. But just like you mentioned before, sometimes if you move the gas, you move the fields. But also the fields if they're strong enough, can prevent the gas from moving. And so when the stars makes the gas move, what what happens? Well, this is very much an open question. It's one that I'm very interested in. Because star formation, it isn't a linear process. It doesn't just start, carry on until it gets to the end and then stop. What happens is, as stars formally influence their surroundings, the essentially ejection of energy and momentum back into the molecular cloud from forming stars does really significantly change both the morphology and the dynamics of the clouds. And the role of magnetic fields in that, it's still very uncertain. What we're seeing with our own observations, so I mostly work with the James Clark Maxwell Telescope um, and its Pol 2 polarimeter. What we've been seeing is that in a really quite a wide range of environments where you've got feedback, the magnetic field gets reorganised by that feedback. So if you have a protostellar outflow, then we see the magnetic field sort of curving along the edge of the outflow. And if you look at, for example, an expanding uh, H2 region, so an expanding region of ionisation around a hot star, we see the magnetic field in a sort of concentric ring around the edge of the bubble. We've even seen this effect in other galaxies. We um, observed the M82 galaxy with the Pol 2 polarimeter, and what we saw was this galaxy is really interesting because it's having what we call a starburst in its centre, an episode of extremely active star formation. And if you move away from the centre, we see exactly the thing that we expect for a spiral galaxy. We see a magnetic field that runs along this spiral arm of the disk. But in the centre where this starburst is happening, where there's this really intense feedback, the magnetic field has been entirely reordered. It's been flipped so that it's running out of the galaxy and connecting the galaxy to the instant intergalactic medium and essentially probably helping to move gas and dust out of the galaxy and into the surrounding the surrounding area. So wherever we look, we seem to see that the magnetic field is reorganized by feedback, which at first glance suggests the magnetic field is not necessarily very important. But then it's also not a surprising result because we're saying that the gas and the magnetic field move together. So if you move the gas, you must move the magnetic field and feedback almost by definition moves the gas. What's interesting is comparing, again with simulations, and looking at whether the evolution of the cloud would have been different under feedback without the magnetic fields. Because different simulations and different aspects of feedback, the magnetic field seems to have quite different effects. So 
again, thinking of this analogy of magnetic fields as sort of guitar strings in a cloud, it's providing tension. It's making it harder for, for example, a bubble of ionized gas to open in the cloud because the magnetic field's resisting and wants to go back to where it was before. So it's likely that magnetic fields sort of constrain the evolution of H2 regions. But the effect with uh, protostellar outflows might be quite different. It might be there. Some simulations have suggested this work by um, uh, Krumhaus and Federaff and various other people. Some, some models have suggested that the magnetic field couples to the feedback. And whereas if you'd Without a magnetic field, you'd have a little jet from a, from a protostar and it would stop and it might heat up its surroundings, but that's as far as it would go. But if that jet of ionised material couples to a magnetic field lies in the cloud, the feedback can propagate much, much further, perhaps changing the energy balance of the entire cloud rather than just its local environment. So there's some, there's some incredibly complex physics going on here, and we're really only starting to get the kind of statistics the amount of observations that we need to really start to understand what's going on so it's a very exciting time to be working on it and so if you allow me to uh, change the topic a little bit how did you end up researching magnetic fields is it something that you set out to do early on in your career or did it fall into your lab a little bit of both so i've always found magnetic fields interesting but when you start out, people tend to say, well, maybe don't work on the magnetic fields right now, you know, because they are notoriously difficult to measure. And also, when I started my PhD, I'm not actually certain there was a working submillimeter polarimeter available at the time. But I started out working on, I've always worked on star formation. Um, and I've done almost all of my work with the James Clark Maxwell Telescope, the JCMT. So when I started out, I was working on non-polarised observations of molecular clouds. So I did my PhD with Derek Ward-Thompson, uh, who's very much an expert on these things, and he pointed me in the direction of some observations of dust in nearby molecular clouds made with the Scuba 2 camera on the JCMT, but at that point the polarimeter wasn't commissioned. And it was very interesting, in my PhD I sort of explored the energy balance of these clouds and the, the cause, but there was an obvious gap in the analysis because you know we could work out the gravitational energy and the thermal energy and the external pressure on these things and then it's just like and there's also a magnetic field and there's a quote that i love um from the 1960s actually by ludwig Voltje, who said that in astronomy we investigate the part of a phenomena that we can and then whatever we can't explain, we ascribe to the effects of the magnetic field. It therefore follows that the larger one's ignorance, the stronger the magnetic field. So I was very aware of this. There was an extra term in our analysis that we just were not dealing with. So I was very lucky then, because when I started my first postdoc, the Pol 2 polarimeter on the JCMT came online, and suddenly it was accessible again, the magnetic field. So since my first postdoc, I've been working on magnetic fields and star formation. It's been it's been a wonderful time to be working on it because I mean we've got Pol two but uh, we also had Sophia for a while the Airborne Observatory uh, which had a far infrared polarimeter uh, and Alma has brought its polarimetric capabilities online over the last few years and that has absolutely revolutionised the field because. We can see in exquisite detail the magnetic field structure in more distant star-forming regions that aren't accessible with a single-dish telescope. So it's really a, a great time with more and more and more facilities coming online, and a few going offline as well. But, you know, this is the way of these things. It's a, it's a really good time to be working on it. Sophia will be missed. The uh, fact that Alma is now uh, doing polarimetry is 
fantastic. Which unfortunately means that we're, it's probably going to be even more oversubscribed than it currently is because all of the Sophia people will most likely switch <laughs> to JCMT and, um, and Alma now um, that Sophia is offline. We'll see how it goes. Um, it's not necessarily an obvious switch straight from... It's one of these things where there's a very... On paper, a very small difference in wavelength between Alma and Sophia. So Sophia was working at um, out to about 214 microns, whereas Alma, you very rarely see it used above about 600. So, I mean, that doesn't necessarily seem like much of a gap, but it means that Sophia was on the hot side of the spectral energy distribution of dust and Alma's on the cold side. And you're, the longer wavelength you go, the less likely it is that you're observing dust polarization, the more likely that you're observing synchrotron polarization if you're looking at the continuum. So, I mean, that's not to say that people don't work with both all the time. Everybody does. But, you know, there's it's not necessarily one-to-one mapping with the physics, which I think is interesting. But also, the great thing that ALMA can do is spectropolarimetry. So that, I think, is going to be very exciting over the next few years, because all of the work that I've been talking about, apart from when I mentioned the Zeeman effect was using dust emission. But there's all of these spectral lines, some of which are polarised, and there's the Zeeman effect, which I think Alma has only detected upper limits for so far, because it is extremely difficult to do. There's various other ways in which you can create polarised spectral lines, which Alma is starting to investigate in a big way, so that's going to be very exciting. And talking about Zeeman, the um, SKA is coming online, and that is going to be able to some Zeeman uh, observations, I heard. So it's very exciting as well. Absolutely. The the, um, the SKA is going to be amazing. But even now, Meerkat, one of the SKA precursors, the possibility of doing Zeeman effects in um, OH molecules with that is really quite exciting. Uh, but we don't actually have to wait that long because there's the FAST telescope in China, the 500 meter aperture spherical telescope it's called and they are doing some very exciting work on measuring the Zeeman effect in absorption rather than emission which so far I think there's only been one paper published by Dao Chengqing on L1544 which is a very well studied dense core but by measuring the Zeeman effect in self-absorption rather than emission you can fill in some of those gaps in density space where previously we've just had no information whatsoever there's only been one result published so far, but if there are more coming along the line, that would be very exciting. I should probably add that FAST is comparable to, but larger than the Arecibo telescope in Puerto Rico, which um, unfortunately collapsed a few years ago. But the kind of physics that you could do with Arecibo, you can do with FAST. Um, so that's very exciting as well. It's the first time I've heard of doing Zeeman with self-absorption. It's uh, I need to read the paper now. I, I can't wait. Uh, it's been a long time since your first postdoc and since you uh, started your journey studying magnetic fields, but now you are a very well-established and very respected member of the magnetic field community. Thank you and very much. You recently participated in the writing of a chapter for the Protostars and Planet 7, which for um, listeners at home, you were the lead author in writing the chapter on magnetic fields for Protostars and Planet 7. Could you talk about this experience? Uh, sure. So Protostars and Planets, it's a well-established conference series on, well, what it says on the tin, star formation and planet formation. And it's unusual amongst academic conferences because essentially it's a review conference. Rather than 
everybody giving short presentations on individual research projects. There's a number of essentially seminar-length presentations on work over the last even as much as 10 years on the particular topic. So it's quite an honour and also quite daunting to write one of these chapters. And I was very, very lucky to be able to do so with um, my co-authors, Laura Fissel, Tia Liu, Menush Tani and um, Eva Entelusi. We actually wrote most of it over the pandemic because this conference, it was supposedly... There's no strict cadence in terms of race, stars and planets conferences, but they're sort of meant to be every five to seven years. But the last one was in 2013. The most recent one was in 2023 because it was repeatedly delayed. So it was actually quite comforting during COVID when I was locked in my one bedroom flat to have my co-authors on Zoom chatting about magnetic fields and just trying to summarise everything that's happened over the last few years. Very good time to be doing it because we had all of these amazing observations to talk about. feels like quite a responsibility because there's been so much good work done over the last few years. And even with a 30-page review chapter, you struggle to do justice to everybody's work. So I hope that we showcased quite how much has been done and quite how much there is still to do because I mean the wonderful thing about putting together everything we've learned over the last 10 years is you realize how much more we still need to do but having the chance to put all of that together and then present it uh, the conference was in Kyoto actually and took place in the same conference center where the Kyoto climate accords were signed which does put it in perspective a bit it doesn't it's not the most important thing that's ever happened in that conference center but it was um great fun and it's a brilliant opportunity to put your research into a larger context because there's chapters on everything from the formation of molecular clouds through to the detailed physics of uh, planet formation. So it's easy to get sort of lost in the detail of the small bit of the problem that we work on, but having a week of seeing the entire field from large to smaller scales, it does make you realise that we are providing an important piece of the jigsaw with this work. And as somebody who has relied on the version of the chapter that you wrote in Protostars and Planet 6, I am very thankful. <laughs> <laughs> and, I'm, uh, and I'm happy to relay the thanks of all of the other students that are in the same situation as me for the uh, work that you put into writing this. That's very kind of you. Thank you very much. Glad it's useful. And so you mentioned earlier in our conversation that you uh, worked on M82. Are you working on any current targets or is that preparatory? I'm working probably on too many things at once, as is always the way. So I am at the moment working, amongst other things, on completing some of the work on the regions that we observe without the magnetic field as a precursor to doing sort of more detailed follow-up with the polarimeter. Uh, we've also got some observations of another galaxy, uh, NGC 253, that I've been working on with Walter Gear and Galway. That's quite exciting because NGC 253 is another starburst galaxy, but we see somewhat different behaviour than we saw in M82, so hopefully that will be quite fun. Um, but a lot of the work that I'm doing is, part, is as part of the JCMT BISTRO survey. So BISTRO stands for B-Fields and Star Forming Region Observations, which is sadly not the worst acronym anyone will hear this week in astronomy. So there's a lot going on there. We've got observations made of the magnetic field in the galactic centre um, and in a number of high-mass star-forming regions and in some, some pre-stellar cores, so some a sample of cores that are very small-scaled but on the brink of forming individual stars. So hopefully over the next few months we're going to have some quite exciting results coming out of 
our work as a consortium. So that's probably something to keep an eye on. Another piece of work that we've got hopefully coming out fairly soon is work that's been done by my PhD student, Zach Khan, who's working on a very interesting high mass star forming region. And he's really looking into the effect that it has on the structure of a really quite a large cloud once feedback turns on. So hopefully that will be out there to read fairly soon. We uh, mentioned a couple of telescopes, some that uh, aren't with us anymore, um, but also some that show great prospects. And so what's the future for the FAR IR observing community? I mean, that's still very much an open question at the moment. There's a lot of work that's going on at the moment on the future developments for ALMA, which is very exciting. There's also very much a need to keep single dish, um, so large, large big dish telescopes going. The JCMT, the one that I do most of my work with, somehow staggeringly is still the largest sub-millimeter telescope in the world, despite being older than I am. And we, it just demonstrates the quality of the science that it's been doing for you know more than 30 years. But there's a lot of work going on at the moment about potential larger telescopes, for example, the Atlas telescope, which would be, I think, 50 metre diameter rather than 15. So um, that would be extremely impressive. Actually, at the moment, I'm working on a review of submillimetre astronomy in the future of it in the UK. So it's going to be very interesting to see where that goes, sort of bringing together the community and what are we hoping for over the next 10 years and beyond that in terms of submillimetre instrumentation. So it's very, we had a community consultation that closed just before Christmas and it's been very exciting pulling the results of that together. There's also the potential for future far infrared space missions. So NASA has said that they will next fund either a far infrared or an ultraviolet mission and naturally now the sparks are flying as it's decided which one it's going to be but uh, there's some very interesting concepts out there for far infrared telescopes. I'm most keen on one called Prima that has a plan to take a polarimeter along but any kind of far infrared telescope in space would be incredible for our understanding of the cold universe so so whatever gets chosen Everyone will be very pleased. The sources might be dim, but the future is bright for our astronomy. <laughs> Couldn't put it better myself. <laughs> well, um, we've taken more than enough of your time. Thank you again, Dr. Paddle, for coming on today. Thank you very much for having me. It's been really good fun. Thank you very much for that, Kate and Jesse. And now, on to the odds and ends. We're trying out something a little bit new this time, where... What we have all done is read one paper, which has come out quite recently, and we're going to do a little bit of discussion of it and sort of give perspectives from all of our own specialties. Now, this paper is actually one which has been released to the public. You don't need to have a university email address or anything to see this. The article is in Nature, and it's entitled A Recently Formed Ocean Inside Saturn's Moon Mimus. So the title for this one I think the titles of scientific papers can sometimes be a bit sort of mysterious, especially if you're not in that particular field. But this one's nice and straightforward. Saturn's moon Mimus has an ocean, we believe. And it's not the first ocean moon out there we've found. Quite famously, another one of Saturn's moons, Enceladus, that has a subsurface ocean as well. But the really interesting thing about this one is that it's actually a very young ocean. 
It's really young. It's about 25 million years. That's how old it is at the very oldest. It might be as young as two or three million years. And again, in astronomical timescales, that's a blip. I mean, in evolutionary timescales, that's a blip. Two to three million years, you know, it sounds like an incredibly long time to us, because, you know, on the scale of human civilization, it is. But there were, I'm pretty sure, early humans around at that point in time. Our species might be older than this ocean. That's really true. And what makes this discovery even more fascinating is that people used to think that Mimas don't have an ocean at all, because it had a lot of craters and the surface was pretty... It was not changing, unlike the Jupiter's moon Europa. Yeah, because I think one of the big giveaways for those that there might be an ocean under there is they were actually catching plumes of water coming up through uh, through cracks in the sort of icy surface. And it's worth noting, these are not sh- small amounts of ice. I know for Enceladus, they were estimating it was 30 to 40 kilometres of ice. And for comparison, I was curious about this, so I looked up how thick the Earth's crust is. And that's only in the vicinity of about 10 to 12 kilometres. So this is something like three or four times as thick as the land part of Earth in solid ice, which is just crazy to think about. That's really fascinating. I was wondering what could be the reason why this ice melted and formed an internal ocean. I mean, yeah, I'm not a planetary scientist myself, so I'm not completely sure how that all works. But I'd assumed it would be something a bit like, um, of course, one of the reasons that that ice and water in general is a really fascinating substance is that for a lot of substances, if they freeze, they will freeze from the bottom up because their solid form is denser than their liquid form. But ice is the other way around, of course. Ice floats on top of water. So, you know, with it being so far from the sun, the fact that there's ice at all, that's not surprising. You know, I mean, I'm not sure exactly how cold it is out there, but um, you would definitely need to wrap up warm. And of course, in the case of Mimas, it's 20 to 30 kilometers of ice. So, you know, comparatively nearly nothing. But um, the question still arises, how do we know about it? And in the case of Enceladus, we could see cracks in the ice where you could see like water spraying up, but we can't actually see that on Mimas. What we do see instead is, uh, actually we picked this up from its rotational motion. You might have heard that, to use an example a bit closer to home, that the moon is tidally locked to the Earth, right? We see the same face of it all the time. That's not actually quite true. Because of the combination of how like both the Earth and the Moon orbit, it effectively sort of wobbles back and forth a little bit in how we see it on the sky. So we actually see something like 60% of its surface. There is, of course, some part we still can't see entirely, but we can see more of it than you might expect. And something very similar was happening to Mimas. You could see these little wobbles, and they told you that there was something unusual about how it was structured under the surface. And it said there were two possible scenarios in this paper. One of them is the one which we've already talked about, which is the subsurface ocean, where it's just the motion of the water. You know, liquid water obviously moves different to solid ice or rock. 
And the other scenario was that it had a very elliptical extended core, a silicate one apparently. So for the Earth, obviously we we picture the core as just being like purely spherical, and I think to a decent approximation that's true. But in the case of Mimas, another thing which could have explained why it's moving the way it does is just this idea that it's got an elliptical core. That's really interesting. So if the elliptical core, which is a silicon core, if that's a possibility, then how do we know it's not an elliptical core and it's an internal ocean? Well, this one comes down to modelling and maths and the constraints of the size of Mimas itself. So the team on this paper, they did do the maths, they figured out that it is strictly possible that it could have been, like, I mean, a really, really, it's sort of like almost a pancake-shaped core, which is a pretty extreme scenario, isn't it? But there is one slight problem, which is that for that to work, this core would have to be sticking out of the surface of Mimas. Since we haven't seen that, and it would be pretty obvious, it's safe to say, that that's not the case. So we have to go to the case which logically makes sense, which is subsurface ocean. And if there is a subsurface ocean, I was wondering if there are any hydrothermal vents in Mimas? I think it's the case that as is, this ocean, as we said, is really young. And I mean, again, 25 million years at the oldest, 2 million years at the youngest. But because of that, I think it's believed that essentially just there haven't there hasn't been the opportunity uh, for the sort of the cracks to form and for like water to escape. So that's why we don't see that in the same way we do for Enceladus, because Enceladus is a much older ocean. If that's the case, then the internal ocean of Mimas will provide us with an opportunity to study the conditions that existed before the origin of life. Yeah, because this was something I was also curious about, was how soon after the formation of the ocean on Earth, uh, life first happened. Because, of course, places like Enceladus are very popular as candidates for potential life. Probably microbial, if anything, but life nonetheless. Uh, And actually what I found is that the time between the ocean forming on Earth and the first life forms appearing was 0.9 billion years. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It takes a really long time, and of course, you know, the right uh, molecules being present for this to happen. But this is the youngest ocean we know about in existence, and we're very unlikely to get a better chance to study one like that. That's really interesting. So this new discovery means that we should be probably focusing on our nearer planets and their corresponding moons and search for, search for life there or search for habitable locations? Well, if we're looking for stuff which human-type life can survive, then uh, unfortunately, I mean, I don't think I'd be wanting to move to a planet with 20 kilometers of ice on top of it anytime soon. But it does give us like some good insight onto the types of environments where oceans form in the first place. And while we do have all these surveys uh, tracking down exoplanets of just weird and wonderful characteristics, in terms of practicality, the ones close to home, relatively speaking, are going to be the ones we have the easiest time observing. It takes a number of years to get a mission out to Saturn, for sure, but... Uh, 
we can get so much more detailed information about what's going on there than we can with that with a telescope observing planets from light years away. That's so true. So this means that instead of searching for life in distant planets, we should be searching for life or habitable conditions in our solar system itself, like Enceladus, Europa, etc. Does that does it mean like that? I mean, I think there's kind of an argument for a balanced strategy. Because I think we can all agree that if there were a really like big, impressive civilization in our solar system, and we'd missed it at this point, it would be a little bit embarrassing. <laughs> so it kind of depends what sort of goals you're looking for. There are going to be some people whose focus is just life full stop, whether that's microbes or some sort of alien fish, your pre-technological species, then the solar system is a really great place to do it, I think, because we know for a fact that there are places where there's liquid water. We know for a fact that one species has developed to be uh, like a full technological civilization already. But if it comes to looking for life further away, then we took this long to discover there was water on Mimas which is within our own solar system. Trying to do something similar with planets, you know, dozens or hundreds of light years away, it's really quite impractical. So for those, we do want to be keeping an eye out for the radio signals, I think, you know, um, SETI side of things. So if we take this sort of combined approach where, you know, of course we'll want to study things like Mimas for its own sake, to find out what's going on there, like what the planetary dynamics are that allow for the creation of an ocean, as well as the possibility of life in it, and having a look at what our ocean might have looked like in the very early days. But also, we do still want to be looking further afield as well, because it just sort of gives us a better idea of what the population of planets is like out there. Because, as we can see, planets and moons both. There's a weird and wonderful assortment out there. That's interesting. Looking forward for more interesting discoveries. You never know, there might be more moons like this in our solar system. Saturn has 148 of them at time of recording. <laughs> they might have found more since. I think there's just a whole host of things we can still discover within our own solar system. That's true. And... Exploring our own solar system is also cost-effective, <laughs> as with our current technology, it's more feasible for us to explore our own solar system, the moons in our own solar system, and planets instead of, you know, going out farther away, I guess. Yeah, it's just, it's essentially the idea where we can do a much more detailed study of stuff closer to home. Uh, the same way that you'd logically expect us to know more about our own moon than we do with moons of other planets. You'd expect us to know more about the moons and planets of our own solar system than even our nearest neighbours. That's true. So, now we can move on to some feedback. This month's feedback is coming from emails to our website. First up, from Mark Warricker. Good to have you back. Brilliant and thank you. Will Ian Morrison's monthly night sky guide be returning? Hi Mark. Great to hear from you. Uh, at present, the night sky is off the air. We hope it's going to be returning, but in that case, it will be going to a different RSS feed, although it will still be accessible on the Jodcast website as before. 
The next comment is from Mark Foskey. He says, I can't tell you what a warm feeling I got when I heard your cheerful theme music coming over my earbuds. I hope you can get enough momentum to keep it going. As you think about modernizing it, one thing I hope you won't change is the way you interview lots of working astrophysicists, including students, on the work they happen to be involved in right then. It's fun to get a view of research as it is going on. Thank you for the comment, Mark. We'll continue to invite new astrophysicists who are experts in the field. It's always a fun thing when you do research on a specific topic and you have experts visiting your department and you get the opportunity to interview them. It's really an exciting experience. And we'd also like to say a big thank you for everyone who's been writing in to us to say welcome back. It is very much appreciated. If you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. You can catch us on Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us post. The address is on the website. Thanks to Kate Pattle for the interview. The audio editors were Lily Correa Magnus, George Bendo and James Turner. The producers were Louisa Mason and George Bendo. Until next time, jod on! on.